Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And this is Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the Connecticut Historical Society's Natalie Belanger takes a look at a pivotal youth movement of the Civil War era, spurred by Abraham Lincoln's campaign stop in Hartford in March of 1860, the Wide Awakes movement spread from Connecticut throughout the North like wildfire. Listen to find out how this homegrown political movement and their signature torch-lit parades helped to redefine American democracy on the eve of the Civil War. One of the exhibitions currently on display at the Connecticut Historical Society is called Albert's Odd Jobs. It's about the life of Albert Walker, a farmer and amateur magician from Glastonbury. Walker was born in 1836, and his life was shaped by the Industrial Revolution and the Civil War. Walker didn't fight in that war. He had a medical exemption. But he was part of a political movement made up of mostly young men that directly influenced the war. That movement called itself the Wide Awakes. I wanted to find out more about the Wide Awakes. What encouraged people like Albert to join? What did they want? Just how influential were they in American politics? And why did the movement originate in Connecticut? So I contacted John Grinspan. He's the curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Our conversation touched on the way the Wide Awakes used costume and pageantry to express themselves how they focused Northern frustration against the so-called slave power of the South in the year immediately preceding the Civil War, and how they could be so important to the history of American democracy, yet also not that well known today. So, John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Sorry, I screwed up. I'd love to know how you first learned about the Wide Awakes and what got you interested in them to start with. Well, I was starting grad school and I was looking for a project for my master's thesis. And it just felt like everything in American history had already been done. And, and I kept reading these books on the on the coming of the Civil War. And, and they'd have like a, a paragraph on the wide awakes, like a little mention of this weird campaign organization that used kind of got young people involved and used militarism and public displays and sounded fascinating. And nobody elaborated beyond that initial paragraph. So I went to a, a professor and started talking about the wide awakes and he opened up a newspaper database, which we, we use now these kind of keyword searchable databases of millions of old newspaper articles. And when you plug in wide awakes, you get tens of thousands of hits. So, you know, this thing was huge in the past, really significant for people in the coming of the civil war in 1860 in the development of American democracy. And yet no one had worked on it really in hundred, 150 years. So it just seemed like a story waiting to be told. And that's always fun. And ever since I first delved into them, they keep coming back. Just when I think I'm done with the wide awake, someone will pop up with a new object they've discovered or a new question about the movement or, or try to bring them back or something like that. So it it seems like the wide awakes are, are uh, refusing to go back to sleep. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first, can you just tell us what are the wide awakes or what were the wide awakes? What, who were these people? What were they up to? Yeah. So the wide awakes are Republicans in the North who are campaigning in the 1860 election to elect the Republican Party's candidate, Abe Lincoln, and earlier candidates and many other candidates to presidency and office. And they, the things that make them unique are they're largely but not all young. They're younger than most people in politics. They have these big public demonstrations and parades, and they wear military uniforms and use military kind of drill and speak and rank. And they, 
they kind of point to this introduction of militarism into this election that's right on the eve of civil war. It's the last election before the war, immediately after South Carolina secedes and the civil war begins. And yet right before the civil war, they're playing with this theme of militarism in politics. And it's this question we come back to a lot in American democracy, what is kind of over the line rhetorically? And the wide awakes are dancing on that line. And then once the election is over, you have this quasi maybe paramilitary force that could play a role in civil war. So they they pose just really interesting questions about youth, violence, democracy, and they shape the civil war, they shape the election of Abe Lincoln and campaigning for all of American history after that. So they just tie up a lot of really fascinating stories at the same time. What was the appeal of the militaristic uniforms and and sort of vibe for these guys? There are a couple. I mean, one is that they're all or almost all Northerners, and they see themselves as coming from a population that's the majority of the country, it's like two thirds of the nation, but it's consistently being oppressed and kind of undermined by the slave power Southerners who are using kind of tricks to control the federal government, to win the presidential office, to control the Supreme Court, kind of manipulate democracy, and also using violence. You know, the beating of Senator Charles Sumner in, in, the, in the Senate in, in 1856, these kind of frequent attacks on, on abolitionists and abolitionist movements, there's a sense that Southerners are walking all over Northern rights and they need to stand up for themselves. And so this militaristic appeal, wearing uniforms, making kind of these big public threats, marching around, it kind of asserts Northern manhood in a way. It says, you know, you, you Southerners might see yourself as kind of chivalric or, or, or see yourself as kind of romantic heroes, but, but there's a Northern manhood too and we're going to push back and it's time to push back. And at the same time, also, the Republican Party is basically brand new. It's founded in 1854. It's six years old. It's a new party that's kind of stapled together from all these old movements, from the, the former Whig Party, the former American Party, people who are in the Democratic Party who can't tolerate being in a pro-slavery party anymore, uh, new immigrants coming from places like Germany, where they just launched a revolution previously, and they need some kind of way to unite them all. And the uniforms project uniformity, unity, the sense that they're all in it together, and kind of harken back to these movements for unity and nationalism in Europe at the same time, which use militarism too. So by putting on a cape, by marching in order, they're saying, we're going to stand up for our rights, and we're, we're a united party. And those are the fundamental things that they were worried about at the time. So they're kind of, the Republican Party is kind of leaning towards its weaknesses and saying, we're not weak, we're strong, we're not disunited, we're, we're united, and we, you know, march in lockstep. And this is really inspiring to Northerners and really terrifying to many Southerners and Northern Democrats at the time. It's interesting to me because so much of the rhetoric of the lost cause vision of the Civil War posits a South that was itself the victim of Northern aggression. But what you're saying is that in reality, at the time, there are many people in the North who feel the exact opposite, that they see the South's stranglehold on federal power as aggression. Yes. And they... We try not to take sides in history, but they're more right than the other interpretation. That the there is, it's not a capital C conspiracy, but there is a movement of slave owners in America to control the federal government, to expand slavery, to impose uh, their their vision on Congress, to use things like the Three Fifths Clause, to use violence in, in the halls of Congress to get anti-slavery voices to shut up and to expand the power of slavery. And so, in 1860, when these Northerners say we're pushing back. They're not wrong, but they also do make kind of almost a fetish out of their grievance. So things like uh, there's a rally early on in, in Connecticut, in, in New Haven, where, and this happens a lot, 
the wide awakes are attacked and people throw bricks and rocks at them. And instead of, you know, the people who are wounded in this, this kind of going home and nursing their wounds, they, they bandage, bandage them and then they put them on a bandstand and still have a big rally. So all the Republicans, all the wide awake see these, these injured guys as a sign of their grievance, as a sign that public free speech is being suppressed by the other side. And they kind of weaponize the sense that they're the ones being attacked as a way to recruit more people and motivate more people to leave the Democratic Party, stand up for Northern rights, join the Republican Party and join the wide awakes. You talk about the use of uniforms. Is there any, you know, as a person who works in a museum, I'm always interested in the material culture of any movement. Were they using anything else um, as emblems of their cause? Yeah, I mean, they're a very physical movement and they're a very material movement. And there, obviously there's material culture throughout American politics. There's uh, cockades and torches and um, hunting shirts and log cabins and hard cider and all this stuff. 1860 is really the first campaign with a coordinated uniform approach across an entire party, across all of its appeals from, from Maine to San Francisco. You know, these guys are wearing essentially the same uniform, which is a black, what they call it enameled cloth cape and a cap. And I mean, if you compare their uniforms to what like uh, soldiers in Europe are wearing at the time, they're not, they're not very impressive. They don't have the epaulets, they don't have the braids and the buttons, but, but they do kind of signal this uniformity. They have these torches that are designed to always kind of point upright as a swing that are on kind of a, uh, a little bit of a hinge. And so they march with the torches. They have the symbol of the open eye, which is this, this appeal. And this goes back to the name, the sense of the North for a long time was willing to be kind of oppressed and play along to the Southern southern game and always lean towards compromise for the sake of the Union. But they're wide awake to these conspiracies. They're wide awake to what the South is up to. Their eye is open and they're finally standing up for their rights. And so the open eye on things kind of symbolizes that. And this stuff isn't incidental. If you read the, the records of their meetings and the, their, their organizations, they are obsessed with the, the cut of the cape, the style of the hat, the type of torch, the, the, the different drills, martial drills that they can do. They're really interested in this material, physical stuff, because it makes a big public statement about their movement and sets them out from kind of the, uh, the, the raucousness of politics otherwise. They, they march in silence. They're not allowed to smoke cigars when they're marching. They're they're supposed to be sober. They're um, they're really trying to signal uniformity, order, commitment, and kind of like a sternness. And so they they use every aspect of material culture to kind of send that message. But at the same time, it's it's still uneven. So sometimes there's some goofiness and silliness that gets into this movement that thinks it's all about seeming militaristic and stern. You have a sense of how many people were participating in this movement. I guess this is maybe an impossible question, but how many people were participating from sincere political beliefs and how much of it was sort of about, you know, the the drama of it and the the socialization of it? You know, was this just something that was fun for a lot of people? That's a great question. And you're right. It's not actually knowable because most people are probably doing some combination of both. What I will say is that there's a lot of social, there are a lot of forms politics can take in the 19th century that are social and kind of fun. And you can go to saloons and you can argue and you can drink whiskey and beer and sing songs. Joining the Wide Awakes is in a way distinctly unfun for their style of politics. You march in order. You have a rank. You're not supposed to talk. You can't, as I said, you're not supposed to smoke your cigar. This is not a goofy, raucous movement. This is a movement that's trying to project militarism and order and sternness. And so if you're looking just for fun, it's probably not the most fun option out there. That's not to say that a lot of people aren't joining because their family members joined or because it it seems like the right thing to do. The other thing is beyond that uniformity and kind of below the capes, 
the movement is so diverse and so varied about basically everything other than wearing uniforms and standing up for Northern rights, that these are just incredible groups. Some of these people in this movement are incredibly racist and supporters of white supremacy and see opposing slavery as a way to keep from having to interact with African-Americans. And then in other places, there are African-American clubs in, in Boston and in Oberlin, in uh, Portland, Maine. There are, there are African-American-led and run wide-awake clubs. In some places, the movement is seen as kind of a working-class movement to fight against the um, aristocratic South. In other places, it's seen as kind of a way for local elites to march around and have people follow them. There are tons of German immigrants who had been involved in the revolutions in 1848 that failed, who are, are socialists, who are opposed to empire, in the same movement that has some holdovers from the Know Nothing movement that hated immigrants. So it's it's just an incredibly diverse movement. And it's kind of their material presentation and their rhetoric is the only thing that really unites them all. You pointed out how diverse the movement is. And it's really interesting to me because so often in our public memory of the Civil War, we bleach all the diversity out of it and it's pro and anti-slavery. And we think about, you know, the anti-slavery as being this monolithic idea. And it's good to hear you point out that there were many people who opposed enslavement, not for moral reasons, because they were actually segregationists or white supremacists, or simply because they resented the power of Southern elite enslavers, as opposed to having any moral concern with the institution. Do we know of any committed abolitionists who were part of the wide awake movement? Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, because it's the best there's some abolitionists who want nothing to do with American politics because they see that it's entirely flawed and corrupt and the Constitution just doesn't work. And there's no there's no way through the Constitution we can affect abolition. But there are a lot of people on the kind of more practical wing of the abolitionist movement who see they finally have this chance as a, at a major party, a mass movement uniting Northerners, if not against ending slavery in Virginia and Georgia and Texas, against keeping slavery from expanding further. Yeah, it is really important, as you say, to kind of, I think if you look at the numbers, you get a sense of how much this is a conflict between people who have various degrees of, of feelings on slavery. The country has 31 million people in it. There's about 4 million African-Americans, most of them are enslaved, and only 400,000 slave owners in the whole country. So you have something like 87% of the country is neither enslaved nor a slave owner. And they're all making up their minds on a spectrum from a tiny minority of people who are open abolitionists to people who love slavery but just don't own slaves themselves. And this kind of fight over the middle is really how the Civil War emerges. There are these people on the extremes, but really you have this big block in the middle and they have to decide where they're going to end up. And people, we, we kind of imagine all Southerners marched around in gray and all Northerners marched around in blue. But before the war comes, there are plenty of people in the North who see union and connection with the South is a strength. There are plenty of people in the South who, who really don't like other, other slave owners and, and look to the North to help them. And the wide awakes are one of the elements of this process of separating out North and South until you can have a union at war with a Confederacy. They're kind of one of the key stepping stones on the Northern side, that there are plenty of kind of wild-eyed radicals on the Southern side who've been pushing for secession and, and up to kind of violent treasonous things. The wide awakes are kind of the northern response and pushing towards a sterner attitude toward the south from the north. And so we we often kind of want them to be abolitionists and people will use abolitionists as a shorthand to describe the movement in articles today. But 
they're so far from that. A lot of these people were, were really not anti-slavery. They're just anti-slave power. And kind of seeing the distinction there is, is really important to understand what they're up to and who, who's fighting whom. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. The White Awakes clearly play this foundational role in helping this new political party figure out what it is and what it's for. Could you say a little bit about that? And also, do you know anything or do we know anything about Lincoln's opinion about them? Yeah, the White Awakes are decisive in helping the Republican Party finally win the presidency and defining its identity for the generation to come. That the, the elements that kind of come together to make the Republican Party in the 1850s, a lot of times are usually kind of the, the losing party. They're, they're used to losing to the Democrats. They're used to being on the losing side. And often they're the party that's seen as less kind of tough and also more sometimes the elite party. The, the Whigs were kind of wrongly caricatured as like a silk stocking party for a while. And in the Republican Party in the Wide Awakes, they finally have this identity that's more working class, more, more aggressive, more militaristic. It's a really good way to sell Republican values to, especially to young people who want something kind of compelling to hold on to and something almost romantic to hold on to. That even the uniforms, the kind of flowing capes, uh, flowing clothes at that time, these kind of loose baggy clothes were associated with romantic causes and, and European freedom fighters and looking back through history, they, they just kind of bring on this sense that there's something romantic and youthful and energetic and dynamic about being a Republican wide awake. And then once the war comes, the identity of the Republican Party for the next generation is tied up with the Union Army, that the Grand Army of the Republic is a movement of veterans who kind of campaign for the Republicans. Uh, most of the Republican presidents for the next generation, well into the end of the century, are Republican Army veterans. Uh, there's a sense of militarism, northern militarism is kind of a part of republicanism for a really long time after that. And the wide awakes are hitting those notes even before there's a war. I mean, it's interesting how before they, they claim they saw it coming, but you look at their letters and diaries and they did not see a civil war coming, but they are kind of hitting those notes of militarism that the Republican Party will be playing for generations. In terms of the, the question of Abe Lincoln, it's tricky because on the one hand, they're campaigning for Abe Lincoln, but before he's the nomination, plenty of them are campaigning for William Seward. They emerge in Hartford and in Connecticut in the governor's race in the spring, campaigning for this guy, Buckingham. They like Lincoln. There are things about Lincoln that really connect to what's appealing about the Wide Awakes. He's youthful. He has this kind of working man's laborer's identity as, as, as a rail splitter and uh, you know working on the, the uh, boats on the Mississippi River and everything. So he's a compelling figure. But he's a guy in Illinois who's not campaigning, who's not particularly well-known. He's, he doesn't give speeches or many speeches during the campaign. He's, he's a nice kind of figurehead for the party, just as the previous candidate was too. The Republicans are good at choosing figureheads, but um, he's not an active presence for most people. And if they'd chosen another guy, the Wide Awakes probably would have been almost as active for William Seward or Salmon Chase or one of these people. And Lincoln himself, there are not many examples of him hating the Wide Awakes or being opposed to them, but he does say a couple of times, 
you know, these campaigns are nice, but the real way to win an election is canvassing on the ground. Get it, get people out to vote, get tickets in their hands and all these nice parades. They, they might not be really how you win an election. So he does show some skepticism. And after the election, wide awake leaders write to him and say, we're going to help you. We're going to defend you now. There are all these threats on Lincoln's life that he's going to be assassinated before he's inaugurated. Wide awake leaders from, from Hartford write to him and say, we'll send an army of 100,000 to protect you and, and help you get inaugurated. And he says, Lincoln says, uh, no thanks. Because Lincoln at this point, he knows he needs to firm up the other wing of his party. He needs to keep Democrats on his side. He needs to keep Southerners who oppose secession on his side. And the last thing he should be doing is, is marching around with a paramilitary force. So he very smartly keeps his distance from the wide awakes because they they could undermine his appeal to union for, for people who are kind of on the fence. So given that context that Lincoln kind of distances himself because in the earliest years of or months of his after his election, he's trying to avoid war. Once war comes, what do the wide awakes do? Well, the wide awakes are on the ground everywhere the war starts. I mean, the first really big action in the war is in St. Louis, where the Republican Party kind of turns these wide awakes, especially German immigrant wide awake clubs, into militia and send them to fight the local secessionists and grab onto the, the local arsenal, which, which is kind of up for grabs. And then some of the first bloodshed and real fighting is what's called Camp Jackson, where this formerly political marching club becomes an actual para, paramilitary militia and goes and kills people. Um, when there's fighting, the first bloodshed of the Civil War is in um, is in Baltimore and this kind of street fighting between U.S. soldiers who are marching through to get to D.C. and local gangs in Baltimore. And it looks just like a wide awake fight. There's a march. There's, there's people who throw rocks at them. And instead of having torches, this time the, the guys marching through have rifles and shoot back. The wide awakes are really they, they volunteer in huge numbers. Uh, the leadership of their, their different co companies kind of volunteer in huge numbers. And we have a lot of wide awakes who are in the kind of earliest volunteers. Lincoln makes a proclamation for 75,000 soldiers right after the start of the war. And a lot of the wide awakes are the first guys to sign up. But the other thing is, as soon as they're in the Union Army, that old identity as a wide awake isn't that useful. Like, if you had the choice of marching around in a real uniform with a real gun or marching around in a silly cape with a torch, the actual veteran identity becomes much stronger. And so some people kind of forget about their role in the wide awakes because after that, they're Union Army vets. And that's a much bigger deal and a much longer and more kind of in-depth commitment. So one of the reasons we don't know that much about the wide awakes is the Civil War starts and becomes so much more consequential, even than the election itself, that a lot of people jump to a, a kind of more more complete identity as a soldier. I did a previous episode of this podcast about the um, Ku Klux Klan in Connecticut. and. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarities in the way that the specifically, you know, the Klan had its heyday here in the 20s, like it did in a lot of northern places and the uniform and the sort of paramilitary structure and the solemnity and this sort of desire to be both taken seriously and to appear respectable, but also to be feared is an interesting parallel between those two groups. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there are overlaps. And there also, I mean, when you see a wide awake parade, for a long time when I gave talks about this, the first thing people would say is, looks like fascists or looks like Nazi Germany. You know, it's guys marching in uniforms at night with torches. There are appeals across cultures that seem to be motivating. And militarism is really one of them. And the wide awakes are of this era in the mid 19th century when a lot of Americans are looking for some kind of identity. Their sense of kind of national union and patriotism is pretty weak and pretty undermined. And so they're looking for some 
second dairy identity to hold on to. And they're also in an era when the parties keep falling apart. The Whig Party dies. The, the Know Nothing American Party falls apart. It, and these kind of clubs, some of them secret, some of them public, it's a really strong secondary identity kind of motivate people. So the Wide Awakes, the, the Know Nothings, the first Ku Klux Klan, the Union League in the North, which is kind of a, a loyal league for Abe Lincoln. And in the South is after the war, uh, organizes African-Americans to fight for voting rights. There are a lot of these clubs and they're pretty compelling. One of the interesting things is the Wide Awakes are not a secret club. Unlike the Know Nothings, unlike the KKK, they are extremely public. In fact, they're claiming the public space really vocally. The other thing that's kind of interesting is the KKK really leans, and other, these other organizations, leans on this idea that they are knights. You know, And there's also the Knights of the White Camellia, the Knights of the Golden Circle. There's this metaphor coming out of kind of Sir Walter Scott novels that there's something romantic, and it works for Connecticut, but, but it especially works for the South. This kind of chivalric group, the secret that's standing up, the Knights on Horton, the kind of nighttime midnight riders, and they kind of have like this aristocratic cavalry metaphor. The Wide Awakes are hitting something very different. They're hitting this kind of uniform mass infantry metaphor, that they are the united mass of the people, the majority of the voters. There's a northern majority. They, they, most people do not like slavery in one form or another. So they're really kind of appealing to something more broad and boots on the cobblestones than a secret group of people who ride up at night. Um, so in some ways, they're very similar to the KKK, and in other ways, they're hitting different notes. And of course, there's also the the question of the fact that many of them are fighting to one degree or another to oppose slavery, and some of them to oppose white supremacy. So their values are very different. But I could see how they they look similar from kind of 30,000 feet. Right. And there's a there seems to be, I mean, again, correct me, but nothing you've said about the wide awake so far indicate that they are making an appeal to the past. They seem to be pretty well situated in modern times. Even your description of them, you know, these are people from an industrialized society who are used to moving in lockstep. I mean, you can kind of see that, whereas the Klan or some of these other groups, the ones you describe as um, hearkening uh, back to the days of chivalry, it's very much rooted in this vision of the past as idyllic and the present as dangerous. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it's that's one of the reasons they started in Hartford. I mean, Hartford is one of the biggest manufacturing centers in the country with Colt firearms and everything. And these guys work in the, they work in the rifle factories, they work in the textile mills. Uh, their first kind of main proponent, this guy, James Chalkers in his twenties is a textile merchant and, you know, sells 20,000 uniforms around the country. Uh, the, uh, guy who kind of organizes African-American wide awakes in Boston runs a clothing store there. There's in the place they're the kind of most popular and really the hottest is in places in kind of the lower north, which you wouldn't really think of Hartford as the lower north, but it's kind of um, it has a democratic heritage and along this industrial belt. If you go down from Hartford through New Haven, through New York City to Philadelphia, and then along through Cincinnati to to all the way to St. Louis, where there's this industrial belt in kind of the lower north where there's a lot of people, a lot of conflict, that's the, between different populations, between Southerners coming North, Northerners going South, immigrants coming in to work in these factories. That's where there's a lot of this conflict and that's where they kind of pop up the most. In terms of the forward-looking metaphor, I think you're also exactly right. The wide awake see themselves as living in the 19th century. And when they say 19th century, they say it the way we would say 21st century. They, they think it means a modern, go-ahead, dynamic, technological, progressive era. And they look across the ocean to revolutions in Europe at the same time. They're Garibaldi in Italy. 
and see themselves as part of a larger movement that's bringing in the modern world. And slavery in the slave power looks aristocratic, looks backwards looking, looks um, kind of preening. Yeah, they really see themselves as being the force pushing America in the direction it should go and kind of in the direction of modernity. And militarism is also a force of modernity for a lot of these people because there's nothing more organized in the 19th century than these armies and the Prussian army and the French army and, and America lacks a big army. So they're kind of filling in this force. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of that. I mean, they do still make appeals to the founding fathers because all Americans make appeals to the founding fathers. But when they when they dress up and they march around, they're really hitting these notes of living in the progressive 19th century and kind of being a voice for that. So what happened to these guys? I mean, the civil they they get involved in the civil war individually and even as entire militia groups, they fight their identity gets superseded to some extent by being soldiers. And and then what? Yeah, I mean, two things. One, they really do redefine democracy in that everybody who runs a political campaign for the rest of the 19th century, for the next 40 years or so, you get uniforms, you get torches, you get young men, and you march them through the street. And you have barbecues and fireworks, and they they really do introduce a style of campaigning of kind of grassroots, on the ground, fairly working class, kind of militaristic, that runs right through the 1896 campaign. All along, it's pretty similar, and it starts with the wide awakes. Uh, so they really do revolutionize democracy and campaigning. But individually, once the war starts, they kind of join up. And a lot of them have this bigger identity of actually fighting in a civil war. And then the interesting thing that happens is after the war, a lot of Americans slowly want to paper over the differences that brought the war, especially differences among Northerners. They might still hate Southerners or Confederacy or whatever, but the idea that the wide awakes existed largely to fight Democratic Party as a partisan paramilitary organization or whatever, that's pretty unpalatable to Americans after the war when they're kind of stressing reunion. So it's not something a lot of people want to remember. There's some efforts to bring back the movement. And a lot of these people write kind of memoirs about, about their involvement in the 1880s, 1890s. But but it's kind of seen as something best left in the past. And so they've been really forgotten. I mean, this is one of the most important mass movements in American history. It's incredibly large in size, hundreds of thousands of members. They help bring the war, redefine democracy. And yet very few people have a memory of them even compared to other movements like the first KKK, which was really much, much smaller and less, probably less influential overall. But but the wide awakes have been kind of, they haven't been useful to people to remember. And so we've forgotten about them. But we live in an era of really intense partisan campaigning again and militaristic rhetoric and all this and and fears of civil war. And so I think they are useful to us today to remember in a way that maybe they weren't useful for past generations to, to look back on. How much do you know about the current movement that calls itself the Wide Awakes? Yeah, there have been a couple efforts to bring them back. There's this one effort, at this arts movement, calling themselves the Wide Awakes. It's a nice effort to hold on to the name, I guess. And I understand kind of the compelling, compelling appeal in the name. But they're so different from the Wide Awakes in, in so many ways that I really don't think they have anything in common. I mean, if you look at the arts movement, they're kind of try to be diverse and colorful and wearing really complex clothing with lots of fringes and colors. And they, they just look the, exactly the opposite of the message the Wide Awakes are trying to send, which is uniformity, sternness, things that really maybe aren't appealing to the same crowd today in the same way. So it's nice that they held on to the name. Also, they kind of sometimes harken back to the Wide Awakes as abolitionists. And, and so many of the Wide Awakes were so opposed to abolition and so deeply racist that uh, they're just not something you can try to hold on to 
And likewise, on the right, some Fox News commentators have called for Americans to be wide awake, not woke, and try to invoke the name of the wide awakes for a mass movement today also. And that's even more, more wrongheaded, in, in my opinion. I think often people want to grab onto these symbols from the past and use them in the present. But some things are relevant without being useful. And the story of the wide awakes is really interesting and relevant. But I don't, I don't think anybody could or would want to want to bring them back today. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. The exhibition, Albert's Odd Jobs, is on view at the Connecticut Historical Society through April 16th. Or you can take a virtual 3D tour on the museum's website, chs.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.